Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, here we are in the third week of the UK's version of a lockdown because of the corona crisis. Uh, it's the perfect time maybe to discuss what this actually shows about the state of our culture now, what we can expect to happen culturally in the future, what will, what will we have more of, what will we have less of. Also, we'd like to discuss today how the media has treated the crisis, and in particular, how it's treated people who have what you might say are dissenting views. Now, my guests today, I'm very pleased to say, are Daniel Johnson. Daniel was the founder and editor of Standpoint magazine. He, before that, was the leader writer for The Times and The Telegraph, and is now the editor of the online magazine The Article, and the contributing editor to The Critic. Brendan O'Neill has been a former guest on our show. Brendan, of course, is editor of Spiked Online. He is the host of an extremely successful podcast and is well known to us for all his appearances on British television and American and Australian television. And finally, Rafe Hadel-Mankou from the New Culture Forum, who is a commentator and historian. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'd like to start with you, if I may, uh, Daniel. Um, this is a very broad, broad question. And please feel free to uh, everybody to, to chip in. But, but what do you think this crisis has told us about the general health of our culture? I mean, if you like, in the public response and, and the way it's, which it's been handled. What, what has it told you about the sort of state we're in? Well, I, I, I'm often very critical of the state of our culture anyway. Um, and obviously what... what the, the pandemic has done is to shine a rather unforgiving light on the whole of our our civilization. Um, and if we take the broadest possible view, uh, looking at the whole West, not just at Britain, um, we can see that uh, we were unprepared for this kind of test. Uh, we've struggled, I think, to make sense of it. Um, we have found that many of the Many of the props, many of the, the, the pillars of our society and our culture have been turned out to be rather shaky. Uh, you know, if we think, for example, of the response of the churches, um, it hasn't been terribly impressive. Uh, that's not entirely their fault. The fact that all the churches are closed by order of the government means that uh, um, priests can't do their normal job. But even so, uh, I feel that we could have had much more inspiration and consolation uh, from our spiritual leaders. I think it's been the same with the arts and literature and uh, the academic world. Um, the response has been, at best, rather shaky. Um, there have been a few impressive interventions, but in general, uh, I don't think most of us have found very much comfort or consolation from those quarters. Uh, the universities in particular, I think, have really struggled uh, to, uh, to keep going online in the way that you and a few others are doing. Um, and many students feel very let down by the response of universities. Um, if we look, sorry, uh, if, if we look at, uh, finally, at, at, at the way that, if you like, the public sector, the, the government and the civil service and so on have responded. I mean, 
I hesitate to be too critical because I think it really has been an unprecedented uh, crisis, this, and everyone has had to improvise. And I don't want to knock the uh, the work that the NHS, of course, and uh, the government more generally has been doing. I mean, obviously, millions, literally millions of individuals are working very hard and have been unbelievably brave and impressive. I've, I've been talking to a few of them, uh, people who are being forced to do things they've never done before. Um, but uh, clearly, mistakes have been made. And uh, we, the media, uh, have, I think, been rather, uh, rather weak at asking the right questions and eliciting the facts, uh, we could have done a lot better. Uh, we, are, we are, I think, gradually improving, but, but it's been uh, a very steep learning curve. Is that something that you would agree with, what Daniel said there? Very much so. Um, and I'd add to that in, which, in the case that I think that what we've seen now is that Britain is a much more divided country in the sense of the fact that we aren't really seeing the true face of Britain in the media. Um, when you look at, for example, the great um, army of volunteers that we've, we're told have been um, coming forward to lend their time, which is extremely encouraging to see, they do tend to be of a certain type of person. They are, ten they are basically um, from the, the same sort of people that I would see in the audience of Graham Norton or, uh, or on an, an Antiques Roadshow. They aren't reflective of the diverse country that we're often told that we are. And I, I wonder why, uh, when we're told that Britain is such a, such a, uh, a wonderful mosaic, why we're not seeing that reflected so much in, in, in the public sphere at this time of crisis, Specific, particularly when we're now getting um, all this feedback about how uh, our diverse society, the more diverse elements are the ones who are being adversely affected by coronavirus. So I think that's rather telling in, in, in the sense that the media isn't portraying the reality. Do you, would you, is that something you recognise, Brendan? Would you go along with that? Um, I, I agree with much of what Daniel has said. I think what the coronavirus has really shown is that we were both practically ill-prepared and morally ill-prepared for something like this. I think we were practically ill-prepared. That can be seen in the kind of sclerotic nature of the response and the slowness of the response. I, I wouldn't pin that on Boris Johnson's government directly. They haven't been in power for very long. Um, I think the Boris bashing that we're seeing on the back of the virus is a bit cheap and cynical and opportunistic, and I don't like that at all. But it absolutely raises questions about st the state and the bureaucracy and the civil service and the um, speed or lack of speed um, and thoroughness with which they are able to respond to problems like this, which many people knew was coming. We all knew that a pandemic was going to come at some point. Um, so there's lots of questions to be asked about the practical ill-preparedness. I think partly that is down to um, uh, the kind of hysterical culture we live under. We're so often told today that we're told that so many problems are actually catastrophes and, and, are, and are calamities, you know, climate change, for example, or obesity or people's drinking habits. We've developed this apocalyptic language to discuss every single issue and I think that actually means that we take our eye off the ball you know we basically cry instead of crying wolf we cry apocalypse everything is an apocalypse and then when something comes along I don't think this is an apocalypse but I think it's a serious health crisis and when something like this comes along we're not prepared because we've been staring so many other phony calamities down the face for so long so 
I think the hysterical culture we currently live under has a lot to answer for. But the thing that worries me mo most is the moral ill-preparedness for this crisis. We don't, we, we struggle to give this, uh, this crisis any meaning at all. Um, there's no moral direction. There's no sense in which, there's no mechanism really, or ideas or, or uh, outlook through which people can make sense of it. And that makes it more scary than it necessarily is. I think it, when you live in a, in a society that struggles to give meaning or, or which struggles to live with uncertainty and to live with risk and which struggles meaning to be in everyday lives, then when something like this happens, it can take on these kind of epic, terrifying proportions. So as a consequence of the kind of sclerotic nature of the huge bloated bureaucracies we live under in Western Europe and as a result of the crisis of meaning and the crisis of morality, I think COVID-19 is hitting our societies harder than it should have. Could I, could I come in at that point? Um, uh, there is one very notable exception to all, all these criticisms, which I totally agree with, uh, that we've all made, and that is Her Majesty the Queen. I did think that her broadcast uh, was a perfect example of how a head of state, and of course she's far more than just a head of state, she is, in a sense, the matriarch of the nation, of the whole Commonwealth, uh, she's admired really around the world. I, I was fascinated to see that millions and millions of French people tuned in to watch her um, because they're not getting that from President Macron. Uh, and, she, and in America too, absolutely, absolutely. Probably not literally at the same moment, but but later on, they've all been watching it on online. And I, I, I think that tells us something about what's wrong with the rest of our authority figures in our society. Uh, what the Queen is getting right uh, tells us something about what others are getting wrong. Um, and this is another reason why I am distressed, to put it no stronger, by the suggestion that there is a sort of huge generational divide in our society, that the young don't care about the old, that the old are selfish and don't care about the young. Um, that's not my feeling. Um, of course, there are tensions because the old are much more vulnerable to COVID-19. But I have not been getting the feeling from the young people that I talk to uh, that they are uh, impatient and uh, unfeeling and uh, just think, you know, these oldies should sort of shuffle off this mortal coil rather than holding them back. I'm not getting that kind of vibe at all from the young. And I think the fact that the Queen was able to speak really to the whole nation, to all age groups, to all people of all backgrounds, uh, shows that um, our older generation still has a real role to play in our society, that they are still precious and valuable, that that experience and wisdom still counts for something. Isn't, uh, I mean, for me, I, I think it was extraordinary, the speech, uh, but the cultural importance for me was not just that it was, I think, probably the best speech she's ever made, was the fact that so many people watched it. I mean, isn't that the cultural, the, the, the cultural point in a way, Rafe, wouldn't you say? It was 24 million? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, as a royal historian and also um, someone who specialises in Churchill, that was a very Churchillian speech. But to me, again, it just sort of symbolised how society has changed because that was a perfect speech to capture a former Britain, a Britain that, in my view, is, is, is basically on its last legs. And I don't see 
that Britain reflected in contemporary society. It was certainly a speech that I would have loved to have seen Boris Johnson give, but I don't think really that it reflects the reality of society when you see people unable to abide by these lockdown rules. You know, we saw yesterday people playing cricket, being chased by the police. We're seeing now motor vehicle rides are going up again after only you know two weeks of being in lockdown. People are now flouting the rules. We'll see this Easter weekend with the great weather, people going out and about again. And when you think about the great generation that sacrificed so much during the Second World War for true hardship and true self-sacrifice, the fact that we can't just stay home and abide by the very basic things about just simply being a couch potato, if that's all that's required in this great sacrifice is to sit at home and watch Gogglebox, and we can't even do that. I'm not quite sure that the, that the wonderful example set by the Queen and her generation really holds true. And the other problem I, I have, unfortunately, is that I, I agree with, with, with Daniel about the, the, the huge importance and, and the, um, the, the iconic status, really, that, that the older generation should have in, in our hearts. But unfortunately, I think this is just another case of a gerontophobic society actually risking further derision of the legacy of the old, because we've seen that with Brexit, how people were wishing people would die off have another referendum. I'm sure we'll see people saying, oh gosh, actually, you know, behind closed doors, maybe we can have another referendum after this has happened and cleared out the, the top drawer of, of old racists. And Britain is one of the most gerontophobic cultures in the world. I mean, you don't see any intergenerational interaction as you get in, in, in other countries. Just go to any social gathering and you won't see that. And you look at the housing crisis and how people are thinking that old people basically are holding on to the housing stock and have these great pensions and so forth. And my great fear is that as this progresses, there will be more resentment towards the older people and that you're going to see an, an increasing chasm opening up between young and old. And that, and that does worry me. If this isn't, if this doesn't come to a conclusion in a relatively near time, is that a is that a fear of yours, Brendan? That basically this, I know that Daniel, you wrote recently, didn't you, about ageism, uh, and and it, it seems to me that yes, there is a sort of as we've just said, you know, we had this shocking. It, to me, it was a bit of a revelation the way that people talked about old people during Brexit. Um, do you think that this is is a real danger? That this is going to kind of just intensify this? Um, I, yes. I, I think we live in an ageist society. I think we have done quite a while now. I think it really exploded to the surface during the Brexit discussion when old people were talked about in the most horrific way imaginable that you know people were willing them on to die and hoping that the, um, their deaths would cause a, a positive demographic, demographic shift in how people view the European Union. Really repulsive and also the kind of boomer bashing that we've seen in recent years, the idea that they are, you know, bedroom blockers in their big houses with all these, this space that they could be given to millennials, um, which, by the way, is not true. There's a huge um, problem, uh, um, pension of poverty in the United Kingdom. The notion that everyone born in the boomer years is well off is, or, and had free university education and, and bought their house when they were 24 years old is a complete and utter myth. Um, you know, in the 1960s, for example, around 7% of people went to university. Uh, many, many other people left school at the age of 15 and started working and had outside toilets and lived in cramped housing. And there were actual slums. When boomers were children, there were still slums in the United Kingdom, which you don't have anymore. So, so much of the contempt that is held at that generation is simply based on myth um, and on a kind of generational envy, which I think is incredibly destructive of the social fabric. So uh, I think we're seeing a kind of 
truth at the moment. There is, I think, a widespread concern for the older population. Um, I'm not sure how much longer that truth will hold. I think it's quite fragile. But the generational conflict is something that worries me enormously. Um, in relation to the Queen, uh, I'm a Republican, but I found myself deeply moved, in fact, by her speech. And I agree it was the, the speech of her life. I, I find it deeply fascinating that she's probably the only person in the country who could have made that speech. I think that probably speaks to a crisis of politics and a crisis of democracy. I can't think of a single politician who could have given that speech and not been greeted by cynicism or shoulder shrugging or, or a Twitter storm. But the Queen could give it and did connect with people. Um, the thing that fascinated me most about her speech was how uh, dramatically it contrasted with some of the media coverage of the COVID crisis, because the media coverage is completely doom-laden and horrific, in fact. They're just pushing this wall of death at us day in, day out. If you watch the TV news, it's horrific and deeply upsetting, often bereft of analysis and context. Um, you have this new ritual in this country where people are waiting for the daily death toll, and one writer refers to it as pandemic porn. I think there's a lot of that going on. And then along comes the Queen with a message that was deeply humanist, in fact, and very, very positive, and saying, we will succeed, we can do this. And I thought that was a great contrast, not just to the kind of, you know, shallowness and, and amateurishness of modern politics, but to the kind of hysteria that we've seen in sections of the media class. It was exactly, I think, what people wanted to hear. I'm not surprised at all that so many people watched it and were so relieved by a message that was pro-British, pro-human and very positive about the future. I, I want to pick up something actually that Rave brought up uh, when he, he was talking about why, you know, that this speech did not reflect really the reality of Britain because people, you know, why can't they even just, you know, stick to the rules and stay at home? Um, I know that, Brendan, for example, you recently talked to Peter Hitchens and, and Daniel, obviously, you know what Peter Hitchens has been saying, which he's been very depressed that this, in fact, has shown how supine British people have become. Uh, quite the reverse, that in fact, you know, we are a country that's always kicked against the pricks, that we have a very strong sense of liberty and that he's amazed, in fact, utterly depressed. And in fact, people seem to have just gone hook, line and sinker for it. I mean. What's your view on that, Daniel? Do, would you go along with Peter on that? I mean, does this, have no, we become I, super? I, Peter is an old friend of mine, but I totally disagree with him about the lockdown. Uh, Peter thinks this is uh, turning Britain into a police state. And uh, he's had support in that view from no less a person than Lord Sumption, uh, the retired Supreme Court judge. Um, and I'm afraid uh, Jonathan is also a friend of mine, but I don't agree with him either. I, I, I think the lockdown um, is, of course, incredibly damaging to the economy, incredibly difficult for many people and has required all kinds of sacrifices, many of which we cannot even see. Uh, my mother-in-law, for example, um, uh, who's of the same generation as the Queen, uh, Cynthia Thompson, uh, died last week, uh, not of coronavirus. Uh, she died of old age. Uh, but um, undoubtedly, uh, the fact that being in a, a care home, there were no, no more visits were allowed, uh, I think uh, hastened her death. And uh, in our care homes across the country, many people are dying, not just of the virus, but also of loneliness. Uh, and I, I, I feel um, that, that that kind of 
sacrifice is is not being recognized um but um but on the other hand uh, we do need this lockdown if we hadn't had it the death toll now would be measured in the tens of thousands not just the thousands and uh, i i don't think it is an un, unfair sacrifice to ask people to make i mean i i i i think staying at home compared to what people like uh my my wife's mother or the, the queen and her generation had to make in the second world war i mean uh, cynthia uh went off at the age of 15 to man radar stations uh along the south coast uh at, at great risk um you know that she was plotting the the uh, the german bombers arriving and sending that information to our fighter squadrons during the Battle of Britain. And these radar stations were targets. Uh, this is what young people had to do in the 1940s. Uh, they're not being asked to do anything like that now. And I've noticed that it's actually the guilt-ridden middle-aged or older people who are claiming that the young are in open rebellion. Uh, Lord King, for example, the um, retired governor of the Bank of England said this last week in a webinar for policy exchange. Um, and I, I, I don't sense that the young are about to rebel. Uh, it's true that some are disobeying the rules just as some older people are, but the vast majority of people in this country are abiding by the rules. And, and rightly so, you know, I think this is, this is, uh, this is unfortunately a, a an economic cost that we are going to have to bear. And I believe that the private sector will rise to this challenge. I think many people in the private sector are feeling they're being ignored and not listened to uh, by civil servants and politicians. Uh, but I know that's not true of Boris Johnson. I know that Boris has uh, at his heart, you know, the idea of turning Britain again into the great workshop of the world, the great enterprise society. That's the whole point of Brexit. And I'm sure that once he is restored to health and we've beaten this virus, that Britain will be back there uh, uh, leading the charge, leading, leading the world, uh, leading, leading um, free enterprise and capitalism back uh, again. I, 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 I don't believe that, I mean, this is a point we haven't covered, that China and societies, communist societies like that are, have somehow demonstrated they're better at dealing with a challenge like this. I, that I don't think. Well, I suppose, I suppose if you are a totalitarian regime, you can actually just lock people and nail them up in their houses. And, and it's much easier to do that. I mean, I, I would have thought, I'm very interested when you were talking, Brendan, you mentioned the media and, and the kind of, you know, the obsession with, with, with death. Uh, you know, there is a slice of opinion um, that is what you would call maybe sceptical about this situation. I mean, I would say that from what you've written, you would broadly be of that. Um, this idea that to some people there is something not quite right about this situation, that in fact, you know, the, the, to use the kind of cliche, you know, the cure is going to be 10 times worse than the actual thing. I mean, do you think, I mean, it seems to me that when anyone does say anything like that, the media sort of shut them up. I mean, more or less uh, entirely. Yeah, it, it, it is becoming 
quite difficult to have a rational, reasoned, open discussion about what's the best way to tackle this virus, um, which is always makes me quite um, suspicious. You know, why is it so difficult to talk about this thing, whether it's climate change, transgenderism, or now uh, the lockdown? You know, when, when, when it becomes very difficult to ask questions, that's when I think it probably becomes quite important to ask questions. And I actually think the jury is out on whether the lockdown was the right response to, to what is undoubtedly a serious health crisis and a serious new virus. Um, you know, there are people who argue, for example, that the lockdown in Italy could have made the problem worse, um, not least by sending young people home from universities and, and from schools to live in huge intergenerational family settings in which there were large numbers of old people, for example, because Italians tend to live together or certainly mix together much more than British families tend to. Um, David L. Katz, who is from Yale Griffin Prevention Center in the US and is a, um, a, a very smart uh, expert in, in viruses, he argued that the lockdown in the US would risk spreading uh, the virus precisely by bringing young people home to live with older people. So we do have to factor a lot of these questions in. I, won't, I don't think we will know what was the right response, whether it was our response or, or the Swedish response, which is more open. I don't think we'll know the answer to that question for a long time. But I do think, I think there's a class dynamic to the lockdown as well, if I'm being honest. I think it's easy uh, for some people to be at home. Um, they can carry on working. Uh, they might have a garden. They might never live in a house. For other people, it's very difficult to be at home. And I don't think this is simply about saying, well, it's a sacrifice and early generations made greater sacrifices. I, I agree with that. But I think when there is a question mark over the course of action we are taking, and when there is no moral um, sense of moral purpose attached to it, when instead it becomes this instruction from on high, often delivered by a policeman in a park, that doesn't move people, that doesn't inspire people, that in fact that gets people's backs up. I think the difference between today and the blitz spirit, in the blitz spirit we knew what we were doing, there was a moral drive, there was a political drive, we did feel that we were together in a grand battle to do something, to save something. Right now, because of the absence of those things, um, if a policeman taps you on the shoulder and says, get off the bench and stop sending a text message, which to me in Hyde Park on the weekend, um, you, you bristle and, and you smart and you say, well, well, why? Um, so uh, I, I think there's an issue with the lockdown in terms of its long-term impact on economic on the economy and the knock-on effect on people's health and the question of whether that could prove to be worse in the long term than the impact of the virus. Well, I was, I was going to say, I mean, firstly, I think that the, the lockdown was clearly necessary in the short term. Um, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Law Sumption and Peter Hitchens in the sense that um, the idea that you're going to have this enforced by some sort of new Gestapo, to use Churchillian language uh, in, the, in, the 19, in the 1950s that he used against the Labour Party, um, that certainly is, is, a, is a worry. But, you know, the idea that people would, of their own free will, want to stay at home and stop, and stop the spread of coronavirus, that's another thing, rather than having the state enforce it. I mean, that's what's happening in Sweden. I mean, they are being encouraged to stay home, even though some places are open. But, you know, the idea of a moral obligation, I think that does exist. There is, there is a moral purpose to the lockdown. Um, but the problem is that it's a very basic concept about trying to save lives as if humanity is purely concerned about stopping someone from dying. I think the great moral dilemma is going to occur over the next few weeks and months when the huge economic cost 
and the cost of our civil liberties becomes something that's weighed in the balance against the cost of losing the lives of the elderly and the vulnerable. And I think that's the moral dilemma that we're going to be facing in the future. And it's something which I'm not sure whether people are going to be prepared to have because the media seem to be unwilling to actually countenance the idea that there are, there is a, the humanity is more than just stopping death, it's actually allowing people to continue their lives. In the Second World War, we sacrificed the lives of our brave young soldiers in order to preserve our way of life. That was a moral dilemma which we had to do. And so this is another sort of a conflict and another, and another issue that we have to, to, to value and decide what is the value of life. Do you think, I mean, how do you think that the media will come out of this generally, if I can ask, ask you all really, because it seems to me that they, were, they, they really damaged themselves during Brexit. Um, I now find that I have to simply watch one news bulletin a day and that is it because I, I feel that a kind of fear is being ramped up. Is that something you recognise or, or not? Um, uh, last night on Newsnight, uh, we had Emily Maitlis editorialising, giving a little speech about um, uh, to uh, to talk about the Prime Minister being a fighter and more seriously um, saying that uh, what Britain needed was a new settlement uh, which would do away with inequality after this. Um, well, she's entitled to her views, uh, as, are, as everyone is, but I think if you're using the national broadcast, if you're, you're the, BB, the voice of the BBC, then you should be very careful about giving what are really very partisan uh, rants uh, of that kind. Um, and we got very used to that during the Brexit period. Um, and I think a lot of these BBC journalists uh, feel somehow that they're now entitled uh, to pontificate in that way. Um, and I, I, I very much hope there will be a bit of a backlash against that and that if we are to continue to have the BBC in its present form, which is an open question, uh, then uh, it must return to proper impartiality. Um, but more generally, I think the media has failed badly in these daily press conferences to ask the right questions, to stick to facts, to be brief and concise, um, to do the old journalistic virtues, the kind of things that, that George Orwell used to write about, you know, brevity and uh, being short and sharp. Uh, ask the politicians questions they can't wriggle out of. You know, Robert Peston and people like that drone on with their long-winded, sort of loquacious uh, windbaggery. And um, of course, that enables the politicians to wriggle out. Um, and sometimes we really do need to know the answers. Uh, and I don't think we've covered ourselves, we journalists, with glory in these occasions. But um, having said that, we do have a free press, more or less, just about still. And thank goodness we do, because when you look across to somewhere like China and you realise how any criticism of the government's response there, and my goodness, you know, uh, Xi Jinping does bear a very heavy responsibility, I think, for the spread of this virus around the world. Literally hundreds of thousands of lives w will probably be lost because of the cover-up in China. Uh, and that, no, n nobody there can even discuss it or, or read about it. So 
I suppose we should be grateful for the fact that we are still part of Western civilization and we do still have the right to criticize our leaders. Um, but right now, I think most of the country wants this to be over. We want to remain broadly united. And therefore, if we are going to criticize the prime minister or the rest of the government, it's got to be well-informed, factual sort of criticism, not prejudice and ideology. Yeah, doesn't this really mean that the, the, the authority of the media, as it, as it might have once been, has gone? I mean, amongst ordinary people, I'm not just talking about Tory MPs who might get angry about lack of, um, you know, lack of um, impartiality. I'm talking about people who watch the news. They don't necessarily take it seriously anymore, or rather they don't look to it for authority anymore. Would you, would you say, Brandon? Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I've stopped watching the TV news, which I've never done before, and I've, I've never particularly been in favour of media bashing. I think the media gets blamed for lots of things it's not yeah. really responsible for. Um, but I think the TV news in particular has covered this crisis terribly, really terribly, and I think it's making people ill. Uh, my mother, for example, phones me often and says she feels terrified because of things that she's seen on the news, because what we are getting is this daily diet of uh, often context-free, analysis-free coverage of death, for example, particularly when Italy was in its lowest point. Uh, that was the uh, you know, daily coverage of the Italian crisis in a way that was not helpful at all. Um, or we just get this kind of uh, this gotcha journalism where you have these uh, journalists mm. at the daily news conferences and they're not really asking, I completely agree with Daniel's description of them. I don't think they're asking questions at all, even if it looks like it's a question. It's really a statement. It's really a pose very often. It's really yeah. them saying something about themselves. You know, aren't I clever? Look at my long question. Uh, you know, maybe I'll get, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go viral on Twitter. Uh, I, I don't like that approach at all. It's not serious. And I think journalists have got ideas above their station to a certain extent. You know, they really, in a, particularly in a crisis, they really ought to be uncovering as much useful information as possible. Um, I totally agree about the right to criticise the government. I think uh, even uh, anyone should be allowed to say anything about the government at all. Whatever they want to say, that's fine. But I think what we currently have is actually criticism of the government that is not really a deep, interesting, moral, political criticism at all. It's often just sniping mm. and insulting. And, you know, if you look at the way in which Dominic Raab and others were attacked for calling Boris a fighter, it's so petty and ridiculous. Mm. Uh, that's a term people use when someone is struggling against an illness. It's perfectly normal. Millions of people use it. And yet media obsesses over it. And it was part of Emily Maitlis's ridiculous, worthy lecture that she gave to the nation on Newsnight, this notion that it was somehow terrible to make that suggestion. Um, the media, I think, is losing uh, public trust. to an, It had been already. Yeah. I think it's going to get worse. Yeah. And I think the media is going to come out of this crisis particularly badly. Actually, that brings me to, to the, the, the final section of our talk, really, because uh, uh, one of these things that happened, you talk about the kind of egotistical self-regarding comments of journalists. Uh, the Sky political correspondent, Beth Rigby, um, tweeted out that she was very angry that there were no women. I mean, she managed to draw in to this thing that there were no women at these press conferences. Um, so we will ride back to the good old days of uh, identity politics uh, you know, and wokeism. And I want to ask, uh, Rafe, I mean, do you think, one thing that I have been struck by is that the news agenda does now 
appear to be about things that are happening as opposed to things people have said or not said. So much of our news was actually about what people were saying and how whether it was wrong or not. Do you? This is something. Do you think that that the obsession that we would have been sitting here talking about only three weeks ago about free speech and about the the progressive ideology of wokeism? Have we seen the last of that or? Or not, do you think, because of this? Absolutely not. It's too Im embedded and people have too much riding on it in their careers to say that it's had anything other than a brief hiatus due to, due, due to the coronavirus and normal service shall resume shortly. And we've seen that, as, as Brendan was just saying, you know, the attacks on the attacks on Dominic Raab for saying that Boris Johnson is a fighter. I mean, that's what you say about anybody who is going through a struggle. You want to say that they've got great resolve and to turn that against them, I thought was very churlish. But yeah, and on the whole media side, I mean, to have people even like Nick Watt asking basic questions about who, who runs the government when everyone knows that there's cabinet, you know, that there's, yeah, that there's, there's a cabinet government that's, that's being run. And this almost as if they've, they've never graduated from sixth form, you know, the basic questions of, of, of politics that are being asked. But, you know, and, but now we're seeing again, you know, in terms of Boris Johnson having coronavirus, we're told that this is a great level. Now we're hearing some more of this wokeism going out that, oh, no, actually, it, it, it is people from mm. the, the, the working classes who are more prone to this. You know, do we need to have this distinction made? We, everyone is struggling with this at the moment. In fact, you know, if you're male and obese, you are most at risk. I mean, that's yeah. why Boris Johnson had it. And one third of the nation are obese. But, you know, obese white men are not going to necessarily be deemed to be sufficiently woke to get people there. Uh, marching about that but if you come from a disadvantaged background or you're from an ethnic minority then you're seeing you're seeing that highlighted when actually Boris Johnson should be the poster boy of exactly who are who's most likely to get it yes exactly that is the point it is creeping back isn't it I mean now you know some of the the usual suspects on, on media are actually saying oh this is actually uh, ethnic minorities are, are bearing the brunt or whatever uh, it's sort of dividing they're kind of already dividing so so would you agree, I mean, would you agree to say what Ray said, that basically normal service on these issues is going to be resumed after a decent interval? Well, of course, I'm not a prophet. I don't quite know what the permanent legacy of this crisis will be. Um, I, I think Rafe may be right that at least some people will go back to the bad old days of wokeism. Um, but... Let's, I, I do think we've been through quite a, an ordeal here. I think the moment when the news spread that Boris had been taken into intensive care, many people I talked to were, even people who had not voted for him, who were not his fans, were really shaken and upset by that news. Uh, it all suddenly became tremendously real to them. And I think experiences like this do change a country in interesting and unpredictable ways. So while there will be, of course, many people, particularly in the academic world and probably in the cultural world too, who will go all the name calling and virtue signaling and all that stuff, um, I think the rest of us will be able to see just how trivial and shallow that sort of behavior that whole brand of identity politics has become, it might actually even become a bit passe, a little, it might go out of fashion. Um, once people are confronted with the reality of life and death, it does change them. And that generation we were talking about earlier, the Queen's generation, 
um, they emerged from the Second World War with tremendous moral purpose. They, 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 I mean, not everything they did was right. You know, the, the Attlee government did many things which Mrs. Thatcher later had to reverse. But uh, she too, Mrs. Thatcher, was part of that generation. And I think when people have, have uh, faced uh, the possibility of death uh, directly, um, they do become more serious. So I think we can at least hope that something will have fundamentally changed and that we won't just go back uh, to the rather, uh, the rather depressing uh, culture of uh, the early 21st century. That perhaps the 2020s will be a rather different decade as a result of what, what we've now experienced. I, I, would love to, I would love to agree with you there, Daniel. I, I fear that I am a little bit more with Rafe on this. I think it's so entrenched that they're just biding their time. I mean, that, that, that's my feeling slightly. Um, Although I would say that one area that I think is, is that Brexit now seems to, be, to have basically been forgotten about. And, and if anything, the, the, the fissure of Brexit has been yes. healed over, whether it's a, a scab that can be unpicked in the future or whether it will be allowed to heal uh, and go away with Bailey scar, we'll see. And again, also in America, to see whether Democrats and Republicans can actually unite over something like this. I mean, if Brexit and the American political divide can be healed somewhat by coronavirus, I'll count that as one victory. What about you, uh, Brandon, to, to, to round off? Do you think that uh, we've seen the end of woke? Um, I don't think so, actually. I, I agree that it's deeply entrenched, not only in the sense that it's, it's, it's um, supported by influential people. I think it runs through every significant institution in society, particularly the educational institutions, political institutions, cultural institutions. I think it is a deeply ingrained way of looking at the world through an identitarian lens, through a very divided lens. And I think it, it will take more than even this virus to shake that off. So I expect it will come back. But this um, period we're living through is definitely shaking it up. And I think what it has demonstrated is the extent to which that identity politics was so obviously the enemy of social solidarity because it's such an endlessly divisive, fragmentary way of understanding the world. It's completely anti-humanist. It's obviously completely anti-nation. Anti and it treats everyone as kind of uh, just this free-floating individual part of a kind of ethnic or cultural group and nothing more beyond that. And that just doesn't work in a time of crisis when people genuinely need to pull together regardless of their backgrounds. So there are some inspiring moments. You know, huge numbers of people signed up to be volunteers. Um, whether the government will let them be volunteer because some of them don't have criminal background checks. And obviously we live under a very bureaucratic state that makes volunteering very difficult. Uh, but huge numbers of people want to volunteer. In my area, there's a WhatsApp group that many people joined and we're helping do shopping for elderly people and deliver medicines and so on. That's going on around the country. That's the kind of thing I think the Queen was talking about too, that sense of social solidarity, social connectedness, national connectedness. Um, so the, the reminder of that stuff, you know, out of necessity as it happens, I think will definitely deliver a blow to the elite politics we've seen developing over the past couple of decades. Whether it will defeat it or not, I think it largely depends on what we do as a society and what, uh, and what priorities we push. You know, there's no natural, you know, for example, when the Black Death came to England in 1348 and killed around 40% of the population, 
it wasn't the Black Death that radically transformed England, although it had a terrible impact. It was really the Peasants' Revolt a few decades later in which people stood up to some of the um, economic consequence of the Black Death. It was really that process, those discussions, those actions, which radically transformed the country. So when we come out of COVID-19, I think a lot of it will depend on what we say, what we do, and what moral priorities we put forward as being better for the nation. That just to, for myself, that maybe it will change people's attitude slightly to technology. What I've noticed simply on an anecdotal level is that people simply can't walk along anymore just looking at their phones because they've got to look where they're going. I hope that that continues. Um, thank you very much for joining me, Brendan. Thank you very much, Daniel, too, and Rafe. Uh, that's it for this time on Counterculture. We'll be back next week with more on the coronavirus. Um, but in the meantime, I do hope you stay well. Thank you.